Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, Nord VPN, of course. You see, it's Nord Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. Something else. Hello and welcome to Kermode and Mayo's Take, or should I say Rihanna and Robbie's Take? Sounds good to me. <laughs> How are you doing, Robbie? Very well, thank you, Rihanna. How are you doing? Yeah, really well, thank you. What have you been up to? I know you've been away. Yes, I've been away for the Easter holidays back up in the uh, the homeland, right. uh, visiting Perthshire with the family, which is very lovely. Um, have you ever heard of, 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 of these woodland activity things? So the one we went to was called Aloft. Now, other arboreal recreational facilities are available but this is one of these a loft a loft yes so okay. you basically you take your children into the forest okay so Hansel and Gretel sounds style. brilliant already lead, lead your children to the forest Leave and then them. climb up a, yeah. <laughs> I mean even worse you climb up this ladder that's propped against the trunk of like a, a mighty pine uh, and get up to the top and then sort of tie your children to cables and then throw them out of the tree oh wow um, so and, and then have, if the knots have been tied correctly, they will then swing gracefully to the next tree <laughs> and then the next tree. And, you know, you climb around and, and go over obstacles. And Got it. Like. And it's one of these activities that you do in a state of abject panic for two hours, okay? Because I was in the middle of it. So our, our, our kids are, are, are nine and eight. And so I was between them and so kind of tying one here and then untying one there and then, you know, coordinating the whole thing. So you go around uh, with your all of your internal organs in your mouth, okay? <laughs> every single one. And then at the end, after two hours of misery, you feel really good about yourself. That, oh, that was great. What a hero. You know, I could do that again. So it was it was, it was, was great fun. That's um, amazing and also terrifying. And I sort of, I don't know why you would do that to yourself. No, I don't know why, but it was actually really enjoyable. The other thing that I did was took them to see the Super Mario Brothers film. Oh, of course. Um, You're one of was the... Because, I'm afraid, yes, because there was... There was no family press screening for that. Normally, when when studios are bringing out a big yeah. family animation, they'll do like a Sunday before release. Mm -hmm. Get the kids into town, you know. So get the them high on sugar. Get them as high as possible on sugar. Get the critics as high as possible on sugar, and just so that people can see the film in the kind of optimum, yeah. uh, child friendly environment. Mm -hmm. This did not happen for the Super Mario Brothers film. No. Um, so hence I, my point of wine. So I was very happy. You faced this a point of wine. I, I saw this film at 10 a.m. So Pint of Wine was out of the question. <laughs> yes, so did I. No, Pint, okay. <laughs> Pint of Wine would have been, listen, we'll come to this, okay? But of the two things I did for my kids during the, the holidays, throwing them out of a tree was probably the better part. 
<laughs> better part of painting. But we'll come, you know, when the top 10, we can discuss. We'll definitely come to that. What have we got coming up on the show, actually, today? Yeah, so we've got uh, reviews of the following films, How to Blow Up a Pipeline and Evil Dead Rise, and also the Amazon series Dead Ringers. Yes, Dead Ringers. I was so ex- I'm so glad this kind of fell on my week um, because I got to speak to the star of Dead Ringers, the double star, Rachel Weisz, and the show's brilliant writer, Alice Birch, who, when I was kind of doing my research, there is not a show that she has written on or been involved in in some way that I haven't loved. Yes, right. She also co-wrote The Wonder, the great Sebastian yes, Lelio film I mean, yeah. from that, which is just a phenomenally clever piece of adaptation. It is. And also, obviously, Succession. She's been a story editor on and um, conversations with friends and normal people, basically everything that I've loved. Um, there's also going to be more stuff in Take Two for subscribers and The Vanguard this week. So extra content includes The Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan, which I'm gutted that I've not seen yet, but I'm, it's very high on my list because of all the hunky... French musketeers in it. Uh, ghosted, pretentious, moi. So, Robbie, this is your second go, your second, second run-up. Go. One for one so far. Yes, I can't wait for this. <laughs> I recognise that piece of writing I did ten years ago, of course. <laughs> and then we've got Take It or Leave It, You Decide. So, our word of mouth on a podcast feature this week is The Death of Dick Long. I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, <laughs> we've got One Frame Back, which is films featuring twins because of Dead Ringers. And Shrink the Box is also ad-free on Tuesdays alongside all our other extra content on the Take channel. And support us, please, via Apple Podcasts or head to extratakes.com for non-fruit-related devices. So we've had perhaps a surprising number of people get in touch about aphantasia, which is the inability to create mental imagery. So we're going to kick off with these two emails, but we'll go more on this topic in take two. Dear in a monologue and mind's eye and a tip-top production team. Following on from last week's email, I'm writing in as another person with aphantasia. Like Mark, many people I know find it particularly confusing and interesting, and I often deal with a lot of questions from friends and acquaintances when they find out. In one line, it's essentially the opposite of a photographic memory. Like the other emailer, I also have a similar response to horror films. No matter how grim and gory, once the credits roll, I simply cannot recall the images, so they have very little long-term effect on me. But I absolutely love horror nonetheless. I write this on the tube to a preview of The New Evil Dead. A good story, a memorable plot development, or a perfect bit of dialogue can all leave a lasting impact. The three things that sum up aphantasia for me that help explain it to others. When you read a book, do you imagine the characters and the scenes as they are being described? I cannot. I love reading, but this is perhaps why I particularly look forward to film and TV adaptations. It's my first chance to see the things I read. The next one is, if you think back on a favourite holiday, can you remember scenes, moments or images? I cannot. I've seen the Eiffel Tower, the Las Vegas Strip and the Pyramid at Giza, but I cannot picture any of them. I can recall no memories, just the knowledge that I was there. Gosh, this is fascinating. And finally, they said, when you think of a family member, a parent, a child or a best friend, can you imagine what they look like and hear their voice? I can't. I genuinely cannot picture what my mum and dad look like or my flatmate I've known for over a decade who I just said goodbye to 15 minutes ago as I left the house. This is the way life has always been for me. It's absolutely my normal and I don't feel like I'm missing anything. When it comes to films, if anything, it's a blessing because re-watching something visually spectacular is essentially like seeing it for the first time. I might remember what happens, but I can't recall what it looked like, no matter how much flair, pizzazz, bayhem and lens flair. 
Hello to Jason. See you both in the Union Chapel soon. Ian in Rainey Finchley. I would be fascinated to hear what Ian and Rainey Finchley thought of Evil Dead Rise. I mean, we'll come to this in the review, but the way in which that film is built, it is it is pure experience, mm-hmm. right? There's there's not necessarily. I mean, there are obviously incredibly vivid and graphic images to take away with you and you know to torment you all hours of the night, uh, but it's it's very much built for the in-the-moment experience. And um, I think it, it may it may be the kind of film that works especially well with yes. that condition, possibly. Yeah, that sounds exactly what would be perfect for Ian. Um, we've got another one from Paul Redman who says, Dear all-seeing eye, and I've seen it all. Following on from your discussion about aphantasia last week... I wanted to let you know that there is also a condition at the opposite end of the scale. I am hyper-fantastic. <laughs> I'm sure Me you too. are, Paul. <laughs> Which means I can picture lifelike, very real images when I think of them in my head. It's not uncommon. About 10 to 15% of people, as opposed to aphantasia, which is about 3 to 4% of people, but it has its positives and negatives. On the plus side, when I read a book, I see it like a film, which always makes me think I should probably have been a director. I, yeah, I always think that would have been such a huge boon for any director. And after watching a film, I can play it back in my mind. It's not always exactly as I saw it on the screen, but rewatching something in a whim can be fun. The downside is I don't do horror. They don't give me nightmares, but they can stop me from sleeping as I replay them later on at night. Thanks for all of the good work that you and your production team do. TT, etc. Paul Redman, and he's got a load of letters after his name. I wonder how many filmmakers, how many great filmmakers are hyper-fantastic. <laughs> it sounds like almost like part of the, the, the a qualification for the job. Right? I remember interviewing Steven Spielberg once after... Um, uh, he made Bridge of Spies mm. and saying to him, oh my goodness, it must have taken you so long to storyboard all these shots, you know, the incredible angles in the in, in the um, the offices, you know, making sure Tom Hanks was, you know, in, in yeah. just the right position, communicating his his mental state through all these kind of incredibly intricate camera moves. And Spielberg was like, no, I just kind of turned up in the morning and blocked it on the spot. Wow. So obviously he has such a kind of an intuitive understanding yeah. of what one image will communicate to an audience. That he can just turn up and go, yeah, there, you know, this, then, is, this is where the camera has to be. I wonder how that works with communicating that to everyone else on your team. Because if you have that shorthand, you know exactly what you want. And then kind of to be able to effectively communicate that to everybody else who needs to know, that must take the longest time, surely. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to have more on Aphantasia in take two, but now it's time for our first review. This is Evil Dead Rise, which people who know and love me have warned me off watching because yeah, I, it's I'm, so frightening. And I'm now going to do the same. <laughs> but I want to preface this with with a, a quick kind of story about my first encounter with Evil Dead. It was it was actually Evil Dead two, and it was I know people say you know the best place to experience any film is in the cinema. Mm. Um, I think it's not always. The case. I, I, so I saw Evil Dead 2 uh, on TV when I was a student. I had no idea what Evil Dead was. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in those days, you know, pre kind of omnipresent discussion of cinema online, you could kind of stumble across something sure. in this really organic way. And I remember sitting there watching it and thinking all the way through, you can't show that. <laughs> you can't show that. And then sort of realising at the end of the film that you know, cinema could do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the that was the kind of, I think, a really formative moment in, in, in my experience with, with, with film was just kind of having seen what Raimi does in that film, thinking, this is it, you know, anything you can imagine and you can you can build can be depicted and, and, and cinema is kind of limitless in this incredible way. Um, there's a really vivid sense throughout Evil Dead 2 that nothing is off the table, mm-hmm. okay? That anything that can be imagined, no matter how kind of horrifying or depraved or, you know, funny, uh, could happen. And that is something that Evil Dead Rise 
recaptures incredibly well. So it was written and directed by a, a young Irish filmmaker called Lee Cronin, who, who made a film called The Hole in the Ground. Which was, uh, it's a changeling film, and I found that incredibly unsettling. Yeah, yeah, deeply It's a great film. And, and, and went down really well at Sundance in, in, in 2019. I, th- I think while he was at the festival, he had had a meeting with, with Sam Raimi, and they'd discussed various projects. Raimi had seen the film and, and, and was very impressed by it. And he'd sort of suggested, oh, by the way, you know, where are we to do another Evil Dead film? Would you be interested? And, and I think like all kind of uh, horror filmmakers of a certain age, Evil Dead is, you know, the the, the very kind of unholy Bible on, mm. on the whole genre. And so um, and so, uh, Cronin kind of jumped at the, the chance to do this. And what he's kind of done with this is it's like a, a horror franchise experiment. So he's taken a winning recipe because we know what has to happen in an Evil Dead film, but he's transposed it to a completely new setting. So there, there is a, a, a prologue set in the forest, uh, you know, Cabin in the Woods style stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of saying, okay, so it's Evil Dead, so we need to do these. There's a very, very funny joke uh, about the the famous demonic POV shots, you know, in Evil Dead. I think I think Raimi tied the camera to a plank of wood, I think, and then <laughs> ran around with someone else through the forest to kind of make it look like this evil presence was, you know, flying low over the ground, yeah. looking for someone to, to kind of mm-hmm. invade and devour and, and do horrible things with. Um, there's a very, very funny joke about the kind of the death of ingenuity in indie filmmaking based on that that camera shot, which I, I don't want to kind of give away because it's very, very fun to discover in the moment. But after that kind of prologue, it then kind of rewinds it sort of one day, one day earlier, and it goes back to this decaying apartment block in in Los Angeles. And so what he's doing is basically saying, okay, so we're going to we're going to do Evil Dead like stuff, but we're going to do it in a completely new setting that this has not been tried in before. Mm. And the object is to, to to make a film, I think, that, that feels at once kind of comfortingly familiar for people who love the franchise, but also really gleamingly fresh. And it's doing things that you've not necessarily seen an Evil Dead film do before, even though the the kind of machinations are, are the same. And the result of this experiment, in this case, I think are resoundingly successful. And I think it's because it's done with such incredible ingenuity and, and, and like a respect for the source material. Um, but also this willingness to to push it in new directions. So before we get into what happens, let's have a little clip. Now we did we did ask for a you know a suitable clip for this lovely <laughs> podcast audience. Um, unfortunately, it's just mainly squelching <laughs> that came back. So, but that's fairly representative of the. Film. I'm sure. So we're going to play a clip from the trailer, and then perhaps you can tell us what's going on. It was a perfect day. All I could think about was how much I wanted to cut you all open and then climb inside your bodies so that we could stay one happy family. (laughs) When I was just a little girl. Okay, there's a little girl in this. Yeah. And even the usable clip was about 50% squelch, <laughs> yeah. in fairness. Mainly eggs, though. So, yes, the, the main the main uh, speaker there was Ellie, who's this single mother played by Alyssa Sutherland, who lives in this decaying apartment block with her three kids, Danny, Bridget and Cassie. And her sister, Beth, who's played by Lily Sullivan, has come to stay. She's a guitar technician who's been on, on, a, on a world tour. And uh, we find it very, very early in the film, I think the first or second scene, that she's become pregnant on the, on the tour. Mm-hmm. And there is a tension, the sisters, they're not kind of estranged, but there's a tension between the two of them that suggests a tough upbringing and this certain ambivalence around motherhood. Perhaps their own mother was not necessarily the most nurturing person. Right. And they're both kind of wrestling in their own way with with this idea of what it is to kind of, uh, to 
to now what what's I mean we're going to get back into this with dead ringers but this idea to kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for to 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 nurture something within you that then comes out into the world okay right which is of course in a horrible disgusting way what the Evil Dead films are all about mm-hmm. so the oldest kid Danny finds um, there's there's an earthquake and finds in this vault under the under the block of flats, this ancient book, and also a series of vinyl recordings of its most kind of uh, terrifying incantations. He puts, he's an aspiring DJ, he puts this onto his, his, his decks in his room, and of course summons forth all these uh, these horrors, which then invade the mother, oh and then she's chasing them around with various household utensils. If you've seen the trailer, you'll know there's a nasty bit of business with a cheese grater. Oh God, I keep hearing about this cheese grater scene and it just that's, freaks me out so much. That's not the half of it, oh. okay? That's mild. And <laughs> I, I, I'll say, look, the, the, the film works so well for, for two reasons. The first one is that the way that Cronin structures it is that there's constant escalation. So it starts with all this kind of smart psychological stuff about motherhood that's kind of ticking away, bubbling away in the background. And then things get worse, and then they get worse and worse and worse. And 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 there's a sense like where where are we going to stop here? You know, what's going to be what what? <laughs> where's the limit? What can't we show? In that same way that I felt while watching Evil Dead 2. Um, and then by the time you reach the finale, you kind of realise well there is no limit because what we're seeing here is completely disgusting. I mean, it's completely disgusting. <laughs> uh, but. In a really strange way, tonally, it doesn't feel sadistic. And I, I have this kind of allergy to when horror films, like the Saw films, get a little mm-hmm. bit too pleased with themselves about what tortures they're inflicting yeah. on people. And, and, and somehow this doesn't do that. So that's that's one reason it works so well. The other is that the post-possession performances by Alyssa Sutherland and, and by uh, Gabrielle Eccles, who plays Bridget, the middle child, mm-hmm. are really, really scary. And they're augmented by some of the most terrifying practical makeup I've seen in ages, which has been really artfully tweaked with CG. So just to kind of boost the uncanniness, you never look at something and go, okay, this is a VFX. This has clearly been fiddled with. But there's just kind of, you know, grins slightly kind of unhinged and eyes made more glary in in, in non-human ways. Um, It's it's, it's very, very well done. I, I think that... My my one issue with it is with a little bit of tweaking, it needn't have been an Evil Dead film at all. And you kind of think, well, maybe it would have been fun to have a, an homage Evil Dead style film that was the start of a completely new mm-hmm. horror creation rather than just kind of burning all this talent on what is essentially a fifth franchise mm-hmm. entry. But if this is the way we're going to get people sitting down in front of really great horror films, well, I was going to say, this is going to introduce kind of okay. people presumably to earlier, hopefully not the remake because... That was terrible. And I, oh, I thought the remake was okay. I thought it was perfectly decent. I, I had a, an experience in the cinema where it was a critic screening. I was sitting in the cinema and um, Alan Frank walks in late in the mm. middle um, in the middle of this. It was an incredibly tense scene. Alan Frank of the Daily Star? Is yes. That right? yes. Late, late of the Daily Star. He's, he's, he, he no longer writes for that. Yes. yes. And uh, he walked in and just searching for a seat, just land it planted his hand on my head very hard <laughs> and I screamed incredibly loudly <laughs> and that's sort of like my overwhelming memory of watching the remake of Evil Dead yes right I mean it's like Bruce Campbell's scuttling fingers yeah. just kind of running over <laughs> yes, your shoulder totally. and the thing is Cronin does like he does do a little bit of fan service so he says okay you know like a catchphrase will pop up here mm-hmm. of course there's a chainsaw you know there's there's, there's, there's all this stuff the the tendrils in the woods the, the tree roots are you know they, they become the uh, electric cables in a lift shaft. So there's all this kind of stuff, but he's he's not kind of mainly interested in paying homage he, or paying tribute. He's, he's kind of wanting just basically to scare you witless. It succeeded. And just really quickly, is it does it kind of pay homage to the wackiness and the sort of humour of the originals? 
It does, but with a straight face. So it's okay. kind of relying on you to understand, like there's no winking, which okay. I think maybe that's why it doesn't feel sadistic to me. Yeah. Is that it's not kind of chuckling away on the outside of this torture. That's Because the whole thing is basically taking place in one apartment. Mm-hmm. You're in that apartment. You're not kind of outside the apartment scoffing and tittering. It's, yeah, yeah. You're actually in there with them. Um, so, so yes, yes, it does. You've sold it very well for, for horror fans and definitely not for people like me who, <laughs> who can't handle that lever of, of scare. So still to come, what do we have? Yes, uh, still to come, we have reviews of Dead Ringers and How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And we've also got Rachel Rice and Alice Birch, which I'm so excited for you to listen to. We're going to be back before you can say identical. This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Mubi. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a Mubi account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly, Simon. This month, Mubi are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival, which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical, with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful. And Tokyo Gar, which is the film by uh, German director Wim Wenders, who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Voila Varda, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit Mayo. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Kermit Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed. Indeed.com slash Mayo. That's Indeed.com slash Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days. And everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners 
Get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash kermode. So before we get into the box office top 10, we have a comment on last week's streamer, which was Obsession. You might remember Anna and I's review of this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is from Heather Ruth, who has said, just finished it. I couldn't stand how the male protagonist, (laughs) I like that she didn't even bother to find out his name, that's Richard Armitage, had the same pained expression on his face through the whole thing. Horny, sad, angry, all the same damn face. Also, not only was there no relationship development between him and Anna, but there was really no representation of his relationship with his family, especially Jay, his son, at all. There were no real connections between the characters. I'm omitting the next line because it's a massive spoiler and... I sort of feel like we should have put you off watching this, but in case, I don't want to give it away. I'm now determined to watch it, thanks to to you and Anna's stuff. Heather has gone on to say, hated this series, in inverted commas, watched it because I thought it would be hot, but it was not. Uh, Incredibly damning stuff. I also had a message from my friend Rachel, who asked if I'd been watching Obsession. And uh, (laughs) I said, yes. Uh, She said, so terrible. The sex made me die. Felt it was so British and bird song. Humping her totally naked on the floor for two minutes was so awkward. Is there more (laughs) sex or was that it? Because that's where I switched off. (laughs) So she didn't enjoy the sex, <laughs> no, but she wondered but she if there wondered was if more. There was more. It's like, you know, it, such, such dreadful food in such small portions. Yes, it's kind of going, does it get better? It, can, it must get better, right? Is there better sex? No, there is not better sex. Uh, so there you go. If you've watched Obsession and uh, you want to let us know what you think about it, please do. Listen, I've cleared the weekend. (laughs) I was going to let this breeze past me, but no. No, absolutely don't do it. So, time for the box office. At UK number 10 and US not charted, it's one fine morning. Yes, and full of extremely good sex, I would say. yes, The best sex. Lovely sex. Isn't it nice? Uh, yes, this is uh, actually Mia Hansen-Lover's highest grossing film in the UK now, which is incredibly satisfying. Oh, awesome. She's such a, goodness, She's she has many critical fans in, in, in the UK, of, of, of which I am one. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I think the, the way in which it, uh, I mean, exactly as, as, as you and Anna were saying last week, the way in which it intermingles all these strands of life and says, you know, life doesn't unfold in clean narratives. Mm. You can have this terrible, sad stuff going on with your parent on one side and then this in- incredibly thrilling love affair on the other side. And these things run into each other in awkward ways. Of course, the great irony of it is that uh, Mia Hansen-Lewis' script for this actually makes these work beautifully in tandem. And there's such kind of elegance in which it, it, it's put together. Um, so, yes, I'm delighted it's done as well as it has. I would urge anyone who is, uh, you know, in, in, in remotely considering seeing it to see it in the cinema. It's, it, it, it's so good. We actually have an email. Um, they've said, I had the pleasure of seeing One Fine Morning at the weekend. And while I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who can sadly identify with the story on a deeply personal level, I thought I'd share why it resonated with me quite so much. It's coming up to two years since I lost my mum to Lewy body dementia, a hideous disease that saw her bedridden and barely recognisable after three years of heartbreaking decline. Going through the painful, gradual loss and subsequent grief, I've often thought about how being a single, mid-30s female came to shape so much of my experience. So to see that play out on screen so precisely by a phenomenal Leia Sedu helped me feel validated and seen, things which I feel define the story of Sandra too. 
Like her, I landed in a whole world of messy relationships throughout this chapter of my life. So seeing her choose the unavailable, non-committal man made perfect sense to me. It's a connection fueled by the purest of desire, the only antidote to the feeling of invisibility that, that overwhelms you when your fading person becomes the centre of your universe. And as the nurse in the home makes quite clear, your feelings don't factor anymore. It also struck me as a smart choice to make Sandra a translator, someone without any real identity of their own, just a useful conduit whose sole purpose is to make sense of things for other people. I love that. That sort that didn't occur to me. No, spot on. It's an yes. incredible. It's a really astute observation. The burden of responsibility that comes with caring for someone pushes your own needs so far away that you do end up losing your own voice. But in contrast, when Sandra receives messages from Clement, we see her glow so brightly that her reflection in bus windows makes her look twice the person she felt moments before. This, for me, epitomises the trauma of going through an experience like this. It was only after my mum had died that I realised just how deep I was in the place that we see Sandra in and how hard I've worked to return back to the world and to myself. I'd like to say thank you to Mia Hansen-Louver for creating such an important film and I hope other people take comfort from the validation it brings. Thanks, and H2JI, Lucy Sanderson. Thank you, Lucy. Great email. That was Love beautiful. It. Really, really lovely. And also, like I say, I feel like maybe you should come sub one week because that that was gorgeous. Moving on to a very different film. From the Sublime to the Shazam. (laughs) UK number nine, US number 15. As Robbie says, it is Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Yes, I mean, it's twaddle, isn't it? And I like the first one. I thought the first one was very fun. Yeah, the first one was really fun. what, can we talk? This has been out for five weeks. Can we talk about the post-credit scene yet? Is that too spoily? Um, yeah, there's this great moment at the end where, because of you know behind the scenes, all these machinations of what's going to happen next with the DC franchise and is Shazam going to be in it or is he not? Yeah. And I love that at the end of this, two two of the James Gunn characters from Peacemaker kind of rock up and see this buffoon, you know, doing his thing in, in, in some kind of cabin in the forest, and and they're like, "Should we have this kind of team?" <laughs> Nah. <laughs> I mean, who could disagree? <laughs> um, UK number eight, US not charted. It's Mummies, which I guess did really well for Easter. Yeah, I mean, it actually went up by 59% uh, week on week because of the Easter holidays. Yep. And because with one notable exception, which we will come to, there's nothing else for children in cinemas. The last children's film released... Uh, made or major children's film released was Puss in Boots back in February, which is disgusting. You know what are we doing when 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 you know things are months apart like that? But yes, that's why it's done well. And then at number seven, UK number seven, US number two, it's the Pope's Exorcist. Russell Crowe doing his thing. Yeah, I, I'm very sad they didn't screen this for critics, and I've not had a chance to catch up with it yet. I want to shout out the, the the headline on the Telegraph Review, which was written by my colleague Tim Roby. The, the headline, I, I don't know who did the headline, but whoever in the office deserves deserves a, a massive pay rise. Uh, who are you going to call Crow's Pastor? <laughs> now, come on. Yeah, that's good. That's an old timer. That's really good. Uh, UK number six, US number seven, it's Suzume. Yeah, which made 469,000 in its opening weekend. That's a massive result for anime. And it shows that there's a a core audience for anime in the UK that that is being nurtured and and, and can be nurtured more, um, which is really exciting. UK number five and US number four, it's Renfield, which I had a great time with. Anna last week did not. And we do have an email from Darren Leithley, who said, I went to see Renfield on Friday night, only one of a handful in the cinema. The lights weren't turned down for the main feature, which minimally impacted what I got from a bloody, silly and bloody silly film. 
Nicholas Holt's tight. I sort of feel like you should have maybe gone and told them that the lights, <laughs> you know, that the lights were on and go and, you know, do go and kick up a fuss about that kind of thing. Nicholas Holt's title character seemed to be channeling Hugh Grant's 90s roles. This is what I said. I said exactly this, that he was just being Hugh Grant as a bumbling, mumbling, sotto voce, sweary Englishman, not quite reconciled with the circumstances in which he finds himself. Nicholas Cage's Dracula is without doubt the best thing in the film, arguably stronger in the scenes where the vampire is at his weakest, looking every one of his many undead centuries, but still biting with words. The action scenes are ridiculously over the top, their cartoonish quality reinforced by all too obviously CGI splatter. Unfortunately, the police comedy connective tissue between the gonzo bloodlettings doesn't match, with several plot threads feeling quite anemic, despite the short running time. I see what you did there. It's a nice idea to try a new way to adapt a well-worn story, and the film doesn't overstay its welcome, yet it neatly illustrates why no adaptation has previously focused on Dracula's dog's body rather than the Count himself. One thing I did like in its favour, the end credits were very nicely rendered, not once simply being a scrolling list of white text on a black background. Thank you, Darren, from Dublin. Um, I, <laughs> I'm just relieved that Jonathan wasn't in it because Jonathan... Is it Jonathan Harker? Yes, the Keanu Reeves um, character. Well, from, yeah, Bram Stoker. Oh, I hate, I hate the character of Jonathan so much. He's the absolute pits. He's an unreliable, dull narrator. And any film without him in is a better film. <laughs> Good. Okay. UK number four, US number five. It's Air, which I've not seen. Yeah, look, I'm kind of with Mark on this, and it is fundamentally a film about a shoe. But I'm glad that it's doing as well as it is because it shows that there is a, you know, enthusiastic market for this kind of star-driven, accessible, studio-made drama. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, it's the ultimate dad film. It's, it's unapologetically <laughs> the ultimate dad film. There is a sequence in this where it, it shows uh, Matt Damon. We know, I mean, we know it's about the, the creation of the Air Jordan shoot. We don't need to go through the yeah, yeah. So Matt Damon is the is the sports agent who's trying to bring uh, Michael Jordan on board with, with, with Nike to, to, to be the face of this new shoe. And so when he's driving up to see the family, there is a sequence in the film in which he kind of pulls off this flawless overtake on the motorway soundtrack to uh, Big Country. Mm-hmm. And it's just delighting in how great that manoeuvre is pulled off. And the film kind of takes time to do that. Every dad in the audience going, yeah, this is it. <laughs> Represent, we feel seen. So, yes. If you say so. If that craft had been applied to a less kind of cynically corporate story, yeah. I would have probably loved this. I just kind of can, cannot get past the fact it's about, you know, seeing this sportswear conglomerate win, mm. which is a little bit kind of... Ugh. It should be the other way around, right? This is what we're used to now more with indie filmmaking. Yes. It's about the little yes. guy. Uh, UK number three and US number three is John Wick Chapter 4. Doing miraculously well. It's wonderful. Four weeks, 14.9 million. The more I sit with this film, the more I love it. I think it's probably the best of the four for me. Interesting. Uh, UK number two, US number six. Again, this is kind of preteen aimed, right? Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. I think it's everyone aimed, right? I mean, I... I, I really... Sorry, preteen and up. I was like... Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, so I, my kids are sort of on the... So eight, nine years old. They're, they're kind of on the borderline mm. of, of, of seeing this. I, I, I'd probably take them to see it, I think. Um, it's been out for three weeks. It's made more than £10 million. A really small 27% drop week on week, which is impressive. I think probably because the, the other big release, which we're about to come to, doesn't necessarily, you know, it, it skews much younger. Um, I thought this was delightful. I thought it was really good fun. And one thing it, it captures, so as a sometime Dungeons & Dragons player, although not for, for many years, 
it really captures that fun dichotomy between the kind of grand, fantastical pomp of the Dungeons and Dragons world. So, you know, these kind of amazing glaciers and mountains and castles and what have you. Um, and also the fact that to play the game is to mess around with friends for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of game night chemistry between the, the, the main cast, which was really, you know, whoever hired the game night people to make this this film yeah. made an incredibly smart choice. Um, that's what playing D&D is like. And for it to have pinned that down, but in a very, very accessible kind of non-fan service way, I think is kind of the magic formula here. And... Robbie has been teasing this quite a lot. <laughs> At number one in the UK and the US, you have guessed it. It's the Super Mario Bros. movie. It's not Super Mario Bros. movie. It's the Super Mario Brothers movie. It's bros. It's not bros. It's, it's literally bros. bros on the poster. Super Mario Brothers movie. It's bros, right? Which has been out its brothers. Which has been out <laughs> for two weeks and has made... Thirty-five point eight million pounds in two weeks. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, of, of, which, of which thirty pounds, very resentfully, is mine. Um, <laughs> I mean, these are ludicrous numbers. Ludicrous. I mean, even allowing for the fact that Mario is incredibly popular mm. across at least two generations. Yeah. Right. People my age grew up playing on the the, the NES, the, the Super Nintendo, everything, through to my kids who now love playing Mario games on the Switch. Mm -hmm. um, I had an advanced Game Boy. Right. Game okay. Boy Came by Advance. Yeah, the yeah. kind of oblong one. Yeah, the, the sideways oblong. One. Yeah. yeah. So um, yes. So it was. It's so Mario's a very popular franchise. There is nothing else for kids since mm -hmm. Puss in Boots, with the exception of Mummies and like one other thing. It's the Easter holidays. Okay. Even despite all of these things, I think that's an enormous sum of money. Does it mean that Hollywood's cracked the video game movie? Probably not yet decisively, because Mario is such a kind of peculiar thing to itself. Mm -hmm. Um. But look, I mean, it's credit to them. It's done incredible. It's the thing is, it's vacuous slop, is what it is. It's absolute rubbish. I think I, the second one's going to be better. I think now it that they've laid, <laughs> I think they've kind of laid this groundwork, and uh, I think yeah, as you, it can, I I actually quite enjoyed it. The problem is, people are saying that oh, you know, it, it the kids the kids like it, so therefore it's good, um, and it does the job. Kids like all sorts of rubbish. I mean, mine would sit in front of. Minecraft YouTubers mm -hmm. for you know hours on end. That does not mean the Minecraft YouTuber is a great work of art that has somehow kind of you know miraculously connected with the kid's psyche. It's just that it's pandering twaddle, and that's exactly what the, the the film is. It's just showing kind of stuff that might happen in a Mario game or that has happened in Mario games. I mean, they dramatize the vehicle selection menu yeah. from Mario Kart Eight. <laughs> that's a scene in the film. And when I was watching it with my kids, I was watching, certainly wasn't watching the film again, I was watching how they were reacting to it. Yeah. And they enjoyed it, but the way in which they enjoyed it was pointing at stuff and nudging each other and saying, oh, look, that's, this is from yeah. this and this is from that. Yeah, yeah. It's an Easter egg film. So, look, it's, it's, it's nothing but Easter eggs. And that uh, annoys me massively. We, do, um, we have an email, actually. Yes, go sorry, go, go, go ahead. We have an email from James saying, ironic that the Super Mario... Bros, Bros movie was released for Easter weekend as it's basically a film full of Easter eggs. Um, see, I'm trying to work out if that is irony or not. Uh, but seeing as Mario is one of the most iconic characters in video game history, it would have been nice if the makers afforded him the courtesy of a script. The movie felt like it was directed by accountants from a screenplay generated by an AI. The games have an addictive gameplay and immerse us in surreal worlds that the, that the player never questions. In the movie, hearing Mario say things like, Ooh, why are these blocks floating? Seems to run counter to this. <laughs> and does anyone say, no, they don't. So why raise it? 
<laughs> however, my, however, Mark's citation of the Lego movie is a good point. If this film was to be genuinely inventive, it should have tapped into the quirky and eccentric. Occasionally, about three times, there were flashes of what the movie could have been, such as Bowser channeling Elton John and the nihilistic star. But as soon as the, <laughs> that star, that whatever, was it a star? The one that the was in loom, a cage. The from yeah. uh, Mario Galaxy. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, I loved that so much. Um, <laughs> Robbie looked very disappointed. As soon as these moments begun, they ended and we returned to a checklist of characters and moments from the games. Significantly worse than the fine Sonic 1 film, but I'm sure it will finish in the top five highest grossing films of the year. I, I mean, I'm, unquestionably. I'm, yes. Undoubtedly it will. Uh, that's from James, the nihilistic star, dimly shining above Basingstoke. Yes, I mean, look, Sonic, Sonic 1 is, 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 is dreadful, but Mario makes it look like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, it, it, the, 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 but the thing is, I suspect Nintendo were so, having been burned by the first version of the Super Mario Brothers film from the 90s, the creative control was just absolute. And it's like, you may not do anything that is not in the games. And that's why the film is like, because, you know, it's directed by the Teen Titans people, and who are hilarious. We've dedicated 10 minutes of talking about it. So. Isn't it? Dis- it's awful. Okay, like, move on, move on. <laughs> Today's guests are the star of the new Prime Video series, Dead Ringers, Rachel Weiss, who you'll know from The Mummy, The Constant Gardener, more recently The Born Legacy, My Cousin Rachel, The Mercy, The Favourite, the list goes on. Plus, we were lucky enough to have Alice Birch, esteemed writer on, as I said earlier, Succession, Normal People, and the writer of Dead Ringers. You're going to hear my interview with them after this clip, and they were so lovely. Um, two minutes. 22, brittle, stubborn, frankly, unpleasant. I really liked her. Depressing serialization. Oh, what's the trauma? I don't think there is one. She's depressed. Doesn't seem to be. And what's the issue? Very clear, very persuasive. Been requesting sterilization for years. Years? Yeah, years. That's ridiculous. She's 22. Remember, she's here to see me, not you. Who have you got? Genevieve Cotar, referral. Cotar? As in the actor. Referred from Peterson, family history of fibroids. Fertility check. She's on that show. I love that show. You love that show. That was a clip from Dead Ringers, and I'm delighted to be joined by the brilliant Rachel Weiss and Alice Birch. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. 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 Um, I'm very excited for this. Everyone has been so envious about this particular pairing, and they've not even seen Dead Ringers yet, so just wait until they do. Um, Often when people kind of talk or think about Cronenberg with the original Dead Ringers, they think of body horror. How much did you want to lean into that really visceral, grotesque nature that we associate with the original Dead Ringers? I mean, it's yeah, it's the, he's he's kind of the the master of it, and it's so iconic in the film um, that I think it never felt like something we we wanted to to do a, just a direct repeat of. It's sort of like how can we find as many different ways for it to kind of exist in a new language? We've got six hours. It's a it's a different story. Um, so there are. Yeah, there, 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 and there are so many tones that you sort of that we wanted wanted to to build into the show. So it was, it, I think it shows up, but in a different way, mm-hmm. maybe with a, a slightly a, a different lens on it. Well, even from the opening, I mean, do you consider the portrayal of giving birth body horror? It's kind of a question that you seem to pose with this. I think it's the question. The question is the thing I'm interested yeah. in. Is is that that's that's a question that's being asked? I mean, we. And I understand why it's being asked, and I think it's really interesting. We're really used to seeing death and violence on screen, 
we're we're so not used to seeing birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really about about just that being interesting to us. Um, yeah. So I'm very interested in the question. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. And 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 what we were interested in, it seems to be something that hasn't been shown very much. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely. Uh, but also I was watching it as somebody who hasn't given birth but wants to and wasn't off-put by watching it. Those scenes are often made to sort of us to go, what? No. And actually I was like, oh, wow, this is incredible. It's a very different lens, I suppose. Mm. Um, there's something very apt about the work that these sisters do. They, they kind of want to modernise women's health. So was it kind of rewarding to portray this work given the current climate around women's reproductive rights and the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade? The overturning happened after we'd yeah. finished the show. Um, I mean, I think that women's bodies have always been politicised mm. throughout history. So I think, uh, unfortunately, so I think it would always be timely mm-hmm. in a sense. But the sisters have very different things that they want to do in relationship to women's health. Beverly it has very noble uh, dreams about changing a broken system um, in the way in which women give birth and opening a birthing centre mm-hmm. that would be accessible to women from all different economic backgrounds and it would be designed by women for women, that it would be um, safe and comfortable and somewhere you'd have to, like, get in and out of within a day. Yeah. You know, she's got these great, great dreams mm-hmm. um, and Elliot, she'll go along with that, not really that interested in that particularly, but she loves her sister <laughs> and she wants a privately funded lab without any regulations to to monitor what she's doing she wants to work with lots of money in private and she um is got some pretty uh, radical and brilliant ideas um about uh, fertility and uh other other forms of reproductive health yeah yeah um, Rachel, you've described Alice's writing kind of previous to Dead Ringers as miraculous, which I really love that term. Can you kind of unpick that a little bit? I'm sorry to embarrass you, Alice. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is miraculous because the characters all, they're, just, they're so incredibly real on the page in the way that they speak. They speak in speech patterns in the way that people, they really speak like that. And they swear in the way that people really do when they're talking to each other, I, I think. Mm-hmm. And they, they're complex. They're psychologically layered and they have so many contradictions to them. And they're often flawed, as mm-hmm. as we all are. They're, they're human. And I think her writing has incredible amount of empathy mm-hmm. as well for, for humans in all their different, in all their different forms. And she's also like, can write a really just stonky good tale with really great <laughs> conflict and drama. And it's really, really, really funny yeah. as well, her writing. So, yeah, she's kind of, yeah, she's kind of got it all she's kind there. Of amazing. Yeah, she is. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, the, the humour is something that is, it's just wonderful to see in this kind of series. And you kind of, at the very beginning, you set the tone with the, with a man asking, do you guys have sex with each other? to a pair of twins and there's there's a kind of sense of getting that out of the way early which I kind of loved so tell us why you wanted to start off with that sort of tone yeah that I mean that was there from from the first first draft um I think that just felt like a question that people ask of twins it's often it's the assumption is often that they're that they're creepy and that there's and there's a kind of fetishization there's a sexualization there that sort of 
happens straight away. Mm. And But it was also about, I mean, they have a lot of fun, you know, taking him down yeah. maybe i think that it's like it, it was it was kind of like well this is this is their sport as well mm. that if you if you're going to try and mess with them then then they've you know they're going to have a really good time responding to you yeah. um so that was that was like a lot of that was a lot of fun to write and it was a lot of fun to film i mean yeah um my my dad is an identical twin so i guess i've kind of always grown up with that as being quite normal and quite familiar um but obviously like you just said some people do find it creepy or don't necessarily understand all of that so did you Rachel, when you were kind of doing your research development of these characters did you go on any sort of twin rabbit holes or anything like that how did you want to develop them as people um alice and i met together um Two, two women who are identical twins, which was really interesting, one of whom I knew quite well. And, and we watched some documentaries about a twin festival yeah. in America where twins of America go and spend a day oh, together. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really interesting thing. You can, you can see it on, on the internet. It's really great. But then after that, I think it was all the writers' imaginations that mm-hmm. that created these particular twins who are who are, who are much more heightened than, thank goodness, than, than anybody <laughs> that we met in real life. Yeah, yeah. We um, we talked on the podcast last week about a, a show all about sex, but completely lacking in any female pleasure. How many conversations were there about centering female gratification in Dead Ringers? And pleasure was a word that we used all the time, like all the time from, you know, from our early conversations and then all the way through the writer's room, mm. we talked. Um, I mean, it's in the Cronenberg, the, the Jeremy Irons twins, they're having a lot of fun. Yeah. They're like drinking martinis and they're partying and they're wearing like fabulous suits. And it's <laughs> wonderful until it's not. Yeah. And so that was something that was always like really important that it would be a part of part of our story as well. But we also talked about like jouissance, like an idea of like a very specific type of female pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that, that feels sort of radical to, to put on screen. Yeah, I don't know. It just, it, pleasure was, pleasure was a huge, huge part of it. So it's really wonderful that that's something that came up in your question. <laughs> um, well, it was just, yeah, it's a lot, it was a really lovely contrast to watch this compared to that. So that you had an all-female writers' room as well, which you were a part of as well, Rachel. Um, so, what came out of that writers' room that would have been different, or perhaps watered down, if there had been a male perspective in there that you're really proud of? It's hard to know. But yeah, it feels like an. Um, it just would have been so different, but um, you know, would have been really interesting. interesting. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, we just approached the the best writers, the writers who it felt like they would. Um, really respond to the material and like all of the writers have backgrounds in theatre which is my background as well that's really interesting why why do you think again it wasn't sort of the agenda or like intentional but I think it that um and you know they're incredible screenwriters obviously it was but I think um yeah they, they they were just in the in in our gang of writers and I mean it was a really beautiful like complicated like lots of really wonderful discussion everybody was really sort of really brought the the research that they were kind of finding their own experiences things that they'd heard from friends or family members like and and then used their imaginations all together it was it was 
and uh, you know, I think I think that sort of informed the show so much. Like we really sort of returned to the to the notes and and to that time. Sean Durkin has a way of really unsettling his audience with the uncanny almost and there are different you know there are elements of that in Martha Marcy May Marlene and the nest so how do you think he does that with the opening episodes of Dead Ringers I don't know how he does it I mean Alice and I were huge fans of Martha Macy May Marlene I I wanted to work with him since I saw that film so it was a real proper like dream come true to get to work with Mm -hmm. him and then also the nest I thought was so brilliant and and South Clare for three-part drama that he did for Channel 4, which was, I don't know how he manages to get a tone of disquiet and discomfort and foreboding, because it's not through music, (laughs) you know, it's just something about where he puts the camera Mm -hmm. and something alchemical in his point of view that creates that. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know how to answer that question. (laughs) I wish there was a little bottle you could drink it mm. and then you could do it but it's just his it's his gaze that yeah. does that what what do you think? no totally totally agree and it's how he works with the cinematographer as well and just everybody on set but on and on set and in the whole way through pre and post production he's the lightest loveliest kindest warmest man so that sort of creeping dread hey, who knows mm. yeah it's magic. Don't feel it when you meet him. He's uh-uh. he's a brilliant collaborator, yeah. and we l- just love being directed by him. Mm. Yeah, he's and he's very funny and yeah. quite silly. Yeah. Often, <laughs> he's a real laugh. So yeah, I don't I don't know where that comes from. That that thing that he does. Did you find that when you were portraying one twin or the other, that the mood on set was slightly different, or did people kind of react to you in slightly different ways as interpreting you as Elliot or Beverly? I think because I was being them, I I can't really tell what was... It would be more maybe a question for you, Alice. I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe not. There are a couple of, like, moments. I think when we were shooting the diner scene, Elliot was... Like she had to, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, we're 14 burgers down. She's got a lot of energy still. She's kind of like talking to everyone and moving and, you know, really thrilled to be there. So <laughs> that sort of feels like a particular kind of Elliot mm-hmm. rhythm. But no, it was, it, no, I didn't feel like you were retaining the characters when you when when cut or... Oh, yeah. no, not after cut. Then I just go yeah. back to being myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't stay in that, no. stay there. I don't, no. no. You had to, like, film sort of pretty much on top of each other, right? You just had to switch from one to the other, presumably to keep the set the same. And mm-hmm. how how was that? How easy was it for you to... Did you have a technique of being like, right, this is me as Elliot, this is me as Beverly, to get into that headspace? I'd spent after the writer's room and pre-production period with Sean and Alice, um, before the end of the pre-production period, they still had, you still had a lot of work to do. I was like, guys, I'm going to have to go and learn my lines. Yeah. Bye-bye. So I shut the door to my office and I, that's when I did my kind of work on my own with mm-hmm. the two characters and I just got to know them through speaking the lines mm-hmm. out loud that and learning them that Alice had written. And they just were, yeah, just two completely, radically different people so when I had to be Elliot I just opened that door and out there she was speaking mm-hmm. speaking Alice's lines and then closed the door and then Beverly so they yeah I could just all alternate mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean it was it was a learning curve technically to do it at first but we got kind of got better and better mm-hmm. as time went on 
Um, you've both sort of talked about, you, you kind of use the word complex to describe the, the characters that we see. What do you kind of actually see as the complexities of Beverly and Elliot? Because, you know, that's, yes, flawed. And, you know, yes, you know, they have kind of, they, they, there's a lot of conflict between them. But when you talk about them being complex characters, what do you actually mean by that? I mean, I, th- I think we're all complex. Like, I think every single human being on the planet is incredibly complex and how interesting to yeah. try and kind of begin to understand or try to understand like every single layer. So that, which is what I think we were trying to do when we were building them and, and, and making them. So I think they're incredibly ambitious, both of them. The relationship, obviously, that central relationship between them is so in, intense and particular and they kind of know everything about each other, but also maybe they don't. In writing them, their, their, their drives and their ambitions felt particularly big. That's, that's a lot to, to maintain, yeah. Yeah, and Beverly's incredibly kind mm. to her patients. She's really empathic. Um, sensitive and then she's not that kind to herself I think often Elliot you know throws people away like mm-hmm. you know she'll just consume people and food but I think she's incredibly kind to her sister will do anything for her sister Beverly is altruistic but she's willing to take money from a morally dubious source I mean as soon as you start talking about them there are so many contradictions um and um different layers and sort of like as says like like real pe- people have these are just quite ex- extreme uh versions because it's drama and hopefully mm-hmm. hopefully entertaining mm-hmm. yeah alice rachel thank you so much that was a real pleasure rachel weiss and alice birch what did you think of Dead Ringers? Well, look, the first thing I think we have to say is that it's extremely different from the Cronenberg film. Yeah. Even though it shares some plot elements, like the, the, there's a love affair with the actress, which is a part of it. Um, and obviously a premise. So you have these identical twin gynecologists who are kind of, I don't know, psychopathically fixated on pushing the field forward in kind of bold and, and, and strange ways. Um it doesn't. It doesn't feel at all like the Cronenberg. So it's. Um, I think the Cronenberg has this really interesting sort of. I mean, it's about men playing God, right? And it's about this. They they almost have an abhorrence of the 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 reproductive process itself. Like they they're kind of uh, wanting to uh, bring it in, bring it to heel, I suppose, and kind of control something that men have no control over, right? And that's what makes the Cronenberg film interesting. Yeah. The, the, the Birch version is basically starting from the the, the the sense of, okay, so look, if these two characters had the same personalities but were female, how would this play out differently? And of course it plays out completely differently mm-hmm. because as um, I think it was uh, Rachel Weiss mentioned in the, in, in, in the interview, there's this sense that um, obstetrics and gynaecology is failing women because it treats uh, pregnancy and childbirth as a disease, right? And that's actually something one of the... Um, Beverly says in, the, in, 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 in one early episode is that pregnancy should not be treated as a, as mm-hmm. a disease. And so the idea of bringing up this, this, this lab and this clinic uh, that will treat it very differently is kind of completely integral to, to, to how it works. Um, even though there's the, the same kind of uh, weird sort of half-sensual, half-alienating mood, like a lot of the decor in the lab is red uh, in the same way as... The, like, so there's this kind of ritualistic quality to the... Um, 
uh, to, to the operations, to the procedures that they're doing. Remind me slightly, tragically, of Snopes, Praetorian Guards and The Last Jedi. Everyone kind of dressed in this red armour, you know. <laughs> it, there's, there's, a, there's a certain religiosity to what they're yeah. doing, right? And it, and it kind of connects with this idea that this is, this is something very spiritual and very fundamental to the human condition. Um, I have to... Okay, so look, I've, I've not given a, a, a straight opinion on this. I have to say I was kind of with it to an extent for most of it. And then at the end, so this is in episode six, it really clicked for me and, and I was massively impressed with it. Um, it, it ends, um, I think, much more strongly than the Cronenberg film. I think the, the Cronenberg film is doing a lot of interesting things, but slightly kind of peters out a bit. Agreed, yeah. This this does something very, very, very clever, which was not what I expected it to do. It kind of, there are hints dropped in the first few episodes about where it might be going. Mm-hmm. And I think we're meant to you know, take those on board and, and run with them as our pet theory throughout okay, the rest of the series. Yeah, lulled, yeah. And then there's this, um, I mean, the, the, the last episode, I mean, it's, it's a really kind of directorial feat. There's a lot of interesting technique stuff that is quite kind of heightened, quite surreal. I think Sean Durkin the rest did the, of the last episode he, as he well. Co-directed he co-directed the last week. He directed the first two and co-directed the last one. Right. And um, I think the, the first two, you certainly feel it's going for this kind of slightly Fincher-like style, uh, but not kind of out and out Fincher, mm-hmm. the music has this kind of Mika Levy quality to it, but it's not out and out Mika Levy, so it's kind of palatable. You know, it's it's kind of high end, uh, you know, bold but manageable. And then it it becomes something much stranger towards the end that is really really exciting and and connects very very fundamentally with like we're doing this from uh, a, a female perspective. You know, we're we're, we're kind of plowing into what it means and it's really interesting that they said you know this is not meant to be body horror mm. and it's not no. and yet in the first episode there is such a kind of a, I mean what like montage you could describe it as like gynecologically robust I don't know what the way of describing it yes. is but it's like they're doing all this stuff in the clinic it's like they're sawing furniture or something I don't know it's really <laughs> kind of like full on in this very much like this is this is the core of what being on earth means you know yeah, this is yeah. this is what we came from this kind of incredible well that's it it's primal. so natural isn't it yes that's the point but yes there's none of the the kind of the ickiness of the no. Cronenberg and you know there's that great uh, classic Cronenberg leg crossing moment where uh, I think it's Beverly kind of unveils his new gynecological instruments that he's commissioned. And there are all these kind of awful alien-looking contraptions that he wants to kind of inflict on women. That is absolutely not what this this new version of Dead Ringers is doing. Um, I think um, some of the sporting characters may be stronger than others. Jennifer Ely, who plays this kind of mega-rich financier, is really, really good. As ever. And she ha- kind of has this, there's a very fun, unhinged dinner party. Yeah. In episode two, is, I think, yes, early, where they're trying two. to drum up the funding and, and kind of convince Ely to come on board. And Which is quite recognisable, isn't it, with the sort of either rich thing that we have going on at the moment with a lot of, like, you know, White Lotus, etc. It feels very much that it fits into that. Yes, oh, totally, totally. And, and I think, yeah, so the reason it works quite as well as it does is mostly down to Rachel Weisz. I think there's this, um, she has a subversiveness in her performance style that doesn't necessarily come through in those kind of English rose roles that she was, you know, early in her career was cast in. But we saw in The Lobster and we saw in The Favourite very much. Um, it really gets to kind of shine. The freak, fra- the freak flag is flying, okay, in this. In this. And the, her dual performance is so good yeah. and so uh, kind of natural on screen that I found myself kind of watching and thinking, oh, how did they find someone who looks so much like her? And I have to keep reminding myself, no, you idiot, that's her again. Um, it's really seamless yeah. in a way that it just melts away within seconds. I so would I've, follow that freak anywhere. Okay, so it, it's, it's doing this really interesting thing with the, 
you know, the the duality of this, you know, what, what will it take for women to have it all, you know, career, mother, and it's playing that really fascinatingly and subtly with the two the two twins, this idea that it takes two people to be a full person if you're female, which is obviously completely ridiculous and, and, and untrue, but it's kind of playing with that very cleverly. I think I went with it because of Rachel Weisz's performance for the first bit, and then when the themes really click in, mm. um, I was just very, very impressed. And you will want to watch the last episode with someone else because there is a lot to discuss afterwards. <laughs> what was that? How did this fit with? Yeah. But hang on, if that was, then yeah. surely, and uh, okay, so there's a lot of that going on at the end. Yeah, it's yes. that, I'm glad you've kind of picked up on just how much fun this is as well. It's so entertaining. Um, big thumbs up. Yes, there's a lovely there's a lovely episode where her parents come to visit from England, and it's all very kind of this kind of charming detour it goes on. But yes, yes, lots of fun, lots of fun. Um, so it's the ads in a minute, Robbie. But first, we're going to experience the renowned laughter lift. So, Robbie, the good thing about this week's jokes is that they're going to be twice the fun, and none of them are identical. Here we go then. As you heard in that interview, my dad has an identical twin brother, but do you know what their favourite fruit is? No. Pears. Not even a not even a titter. <laughs> okay. What did the drummer name his twin daughters? Dunno. And a one. And a two. <laughs> yes, I got him to laugh. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what have we still got to come? Do you know it was a delivery? It was a delivery of that. <laughs> You knew you were onto a winner. I did. It was, yeah, okay. <laughs> what are we sort of to come? Uh, we, we're doing a review of how to blow up a pipeline. Nice. So we're going to be back after this, unless you're a vanguardista, in which case we'll be back before you can say flesh-possessing demons. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And next Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help as Sex and My Boss Live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexandmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexandmyboss.com slash cinema. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with Rooftop Experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challengers and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Dear 35 male projector and digital laser projector, there has been justifiably much correspondence to your show about some of our wonderful local independent cinemas, but some of the big chain cinemas get a more mixed review. I've just come back from a wonderful tour of the Salisbury Odeon, which is held once a month to raise funds for a charity by Naomi, one of the managers, and I want to celebrate the amazing role hardworking people like her do to keep these amazing places of entertainment alive for us to enjoy the films that you witter about each week. 
The Salisbury Odeon is a unique and much-loved cinema. You enter through the medieval dining hall of a 15th century wool merchant's house, which was restored in the 19th century by Pugin before he went on to build the current Houses of Parliament. You then enter what was built in the 1930s as the Galmont Picture Palace as a 1,500-seat cinema slash theatre, which as well as showing all the great films of the last 90 years, has also hosted concerts by The Stones, Buddy Holly and Cilla Black. Talking to Naomi also gave us an insight into the hard work and passion the team need to keep a listed building like this in commercial operation in the 20th century. All of the managers have to be projectionists, first aiders, decorators and toilet unblockers, as well as having the skill to replace seats when a non-code of conduct compliant customer decides to test their cigarette lighter on them, which apparently happens more often than you'd expect. I hope that in a decade I'll still be visiting this wonderful cinema and will be able to be part of the celebrations for a hundred years of cinema history on the site. Up with all those who keep wonderful buildings like this living and breathing, down with those who would demolish them and build a metal shed outside the town. That's from Nick Baker, LLB, MA, PGCE, second place in the Croydon Top of the Form competition, 1983, heritage listener, first time emailer. Thanks, Nick. Amen. So time for our final review, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Yes, this is a really unusual film. I think unless you count Four Lions, which I don't, it's the first terrorism procedural, I think. It's certainly the first one I can recall seeing. And now terrorism is an extremely loaded word in this context. I will say, first off, it's one that many of the film's characters openly used to describe themselves. And part of the, the, the issue that the, the the film is grappling with is to what extent is it terrorism? And even if it is terrorism, to what extent is it justified? Mm-hmm. So it's an adaptation of a non-fiction book uh, by an author uh, called Andreas Malm, which is a polemic about climate activism. And the, it makes the argument that sabotage is, is fair game because the stakes uh, around uh, climate change are so incredibly high pacifistic action is, is 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 no longer kind of getting us far enough. So you need to kind of uh, do something dramatic. You need to do something uh, arguably violent, or certainly violent against property destruction, in order to kind of shift the the, the needle on the debate and and, and, and affect change. Um, so it's directed and co-written by Daniel Goldhaber, and it's uh, imagines a group of young people from all sorts of different backgrounds, but who are all disaffected for very different reasons who bands together to blow up an oil pipeline in the Texas wilderness. Um, it's the, the film, I mean, the, the, there is no cackling boardroom denizens here from the oil company. This is a literally faceless corporation. Yeah. All the film wants to show is, for the most part, a step-by-step depiction of how this bombing unfolds. Uh, you know, literally, you know, here's what you do, here's the next thing you do, mm-hmm. and here's the next thing you do. And then it's intercut with flashbacks which explain why all of these young people are involved in the effort. And we have a clip um, of the the group when they are laying the first explosive charge on a stretch of exposed pipeline out in the wilderness and they get spotted by one of the oil company's surveillance drones. Here it is. What is that? I think it's a surveying drone. What's it doing? Well, using LiDAR to detect erosion. We gotta hurry. What's the matter? Just lower it into the hole. You gotta hurry. Well, is it gonna see us? I mean, it'll see the big ass barrel. We gotta get out of here. Don't panic, just slowly. Guys, I'm gonna try. Okay, okay. Just slowly. Yeah. I'm clear. So deep. Clear. Okay, 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 okay. Drop. Oh. Oh. 
What do I do with it? Just leave it. We don't want them to track us. Wait, so did it get us on video? No, it just scans metal. Sean, what do you need? Caps. Careful with them. Yeehaw, buddy. That was hot. So do you think this is effective as an anti-fossil fuel film? Well, this is this is the thing, isn't it? Because I don't know if it is, and I don't know if the film is necessarily wants to be as much of a polemic as the as as the book was. I mean, I should say so. The the guy who um, knocks the drone out of the sky with that length of cable. If you're if you're actually watching the clip, um, what what happens is they 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 take out the drone with this kind of uh, ratchety thing on the end of our. Uh, strap. I mean, you can tell how kind of practical mind. <laughs> was this rubbish description of kind of manly stuff that's done out of doors. Yeah. Um, but yes, he, he like lets it. He he, yeah. he he hits it with the thing and it falls out and bang. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, that's Dwayne. He's played by Jake Weary, and he is against the oil company because they have used uh, the law to essentially commandeer a stretch of his own land on which to build some more pipeline. Um, he's obviously from a very different background to the character Theo, played by Sasha Lane. She's got terminal cancer because she grew up near to uh, some kind of chemical plant that made the rain kind of chemically uh, active and, 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 and poisoned her as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. There's also Logan, played by Lucas Gage from The White Lotus, who's this rich kid who also sees himself as a kind of Bonnie and Clyde-style figure. Mm-hmm. His girlfriend, Rowan, is, is, is they're part of a twosome who join the group. So people are coming together from all sorts of different places, and I think the, the the youthfulness of the movement is very well portrayed. The determination of the movement is very well portrayed, and also the immaturity of the movement is very mm. well portrayed. That this Bonnie and Clyde style couple become this uh, spanner in the works later on because they are kind of obsessed with the, uh, or they have a, a certain kind of feeling of their own self mythologizing when they're doing this. That they are this kind of pair of amazing outlaws. Yeah, and, and it's they, all very romantic. They stop to have sex. They do halfway stop halfway through, sex. which yes, just they, felt like they should now be, is not the time. You need to go and turn the valve, yeah. please. Just, you have one just, job to do. Just turn, just turn the valve. <laughs> and not that valve. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's, there's, there's a certain pipe that should be laid here and it's not that. Um, <laughs> so look, all of this is done very, very plausibly. I think it, arguably the film threads the needle between is this terrorism or is this activism so neatly, it's almost to a fault. I think like a morally messier film, mm. maybe one that I would have bridled against, actually would have been more, more effective, possibly. But I will say it's, it's hugely elevated by its style. The, the look of the film is very 70s and 80s. There is this incredible synth-driven score by Gavin Brevik. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Which is very Tangerine Dream, right? right. It's, it's very much tapping into, into, into that kind of film. So it's, it has this kind of quite um, metallic, sleazy edge that is really helpful in kind of making the film not feel like documentary. Yeah. Also in terms of the way it's shot, there are kind of zooms to build tension, which is a very kind of of that period technique you don't see much nowadays. And it feels it's very much kind of like tapping back into conspiracy thrillers of the, the 70s mm-hmm. and, 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 and you know, B-movies of the 80s. Yeah, as I say, I think it's really, it's, it's, it's very compelling to watch the plan unfold. I'm not sure I was left with much to morally wrestle with mm-hmm. afterwards because it is so, I felt, it, it carefully charts that course. But I don't know, maybe you felt differently. I, I suppose I, I really enjoyed the film and the, I thought the tension was incredible and so much of that was thanks to the music. Um, I suppose the, the the very personal stories actually leave quite little room for just your average viewer who haven't gone through these really extreme experiences. Um, and of course, you, you want to absolutely buy into what they're talking about and why, and you are behind them, I think, for the majority of the film. Um, there was maybe just a, a very slight disconnect, but I think I wonder if, you know, growing up in Brighton as opposed to growing up in Texas, <laughs> or, you know, I think it's it was mainly because of that. Obviously, I think films 
have a, a duty to bridge that gap for you. I'm not sure how effective it was here. Yeah, I mean, it's a very US style of activism that, that's, that's portrayed. And of course, because it's happening in the US, so why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Um, but yes, I think arguably when you're watching all these different voices come together, it's, it, it, it feels maybe like uh, an anthropological survey yeah. rather than something yeah, yeah. a little bit more visceral. I think that's what it is. I think because it's it lacks slightly in... They're deliberately kind of emotionless towards each other. They don't really have any resonance with each other, apart from the ones who come as couples. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm intrigued. It's, a, it's an interesting film. I'm intrigued to know what audiences are going to make of it. Yes, and I, I would say it works very well on the big screen. If this is something you can see at the cinema, if it's playing near you, that's the place in which to see it because the style is so kind of well calculated and yeah. because the score on those speakers will sound so good. Yeah. It's time now for What's On. And this is where you email us a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. And you can email yours to correspondence at kermodemayo.com. So here we go then with this week's correspondence. I'm Yi from Queer East Festival, which runs across London from 18th to 30th April and features the most exciting, bold and daring new LGBTQ plus cinema from South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Myanmar and more. Join us for an incredible program that will push boundaries and challenge expectations. Tickets and full line up at queereast.org.uk. This is Harriet from Project Market, Vintage Poster Market. And our next event is on the 28th to the 30th of April at the Copeland Gallery in Peckham, as featured on Rye Lane. It's the only event of its kind in the country. 10 amazing dealers, thousands of original vintage posters, the vast majority of which are film. It will be mega. So that was E from the Queer East Festival who runs an event celebrating East Asian LGBTQ plus diversity and pride. And you can find out more at queereast.org.uk. And that then followed by Harriet from Project Market slash Vintage Poster Market, whose event is on the 28th to the 30th of April in Peckham. Send your 20 second audio trailer about your event anywhere in the world to correspondence at kermodeandmayo.com. Correspondence spelt anyway. And that's the end of Take One. Production management and general all-round stuff was Lily Hambly. Cameras also by Lily. Videos were by Ryan O'Meara. Studio engineer was Josh Gibbs. Last week before paternity, Josh, congrats. Very exciting. Uh, guest researcher was Bashak Erton. Johnny Socials was on the socials. And Hannah Talbot was the guest booker, producer and stand-in redactoress. Robbie, what's your film of the week? It's Dead Ringers. Is it? Um, I think mine is the same, actually. Loved it so much. Robbie Collin, thank you so much for joining us. And where can people find you? Oh, goodness. Uh, the Telegraph every week and on Twitter every minute. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Take two with bonus reviews, a bunch of recommendations and even more stuff about the movies and cinema adjacent television is available on your podcast feed right now. Thank you so much for having us. Bye. Bye.